welcome back to In the Queue, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. I'm your co-host, Phil. And when I watch a film, and at the very beginning, a title comes up that says, a Daniel Espinosa film, I immediately lose interest because I don't know who the hell Daniel Espinosa is, nor do I care. Whoa. Wow. Well, maybe after this, that's a fair point. But just because you don't know who the director is doesn't mean they're not going to give you something good. Well, that's one point. (laughs) That's one way of looking at it. Uh, I am Andrew, and I'm your other co-host. And God, did I try to understand what was happening in this film. (laughs) Yeah. I tried so hard. I I tried. I wasn't tired. I wasn't drunk. There was nothing that could keep me from understanding what was going on except for the convoluted nature of this movie. Am I tipping my hat too early? I think I started the hat tipping pretty early on and then you just kind of reinforced it. Yeah. 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 Well, the movie we're talking about today is Child 44, a new film directed by Daniel Espinosa, who he's made other films, granted. Maybe I was a little bit too hard on him. He's made a couple of other films, yeah. uh, such as are, he made Safe House, I think the the Denzel Washington yes. Ryan Reynolds yes. movie. He did. He's actually that, was that Ryan, Ryan Reynolds? Um, I don't know, but it was definitely Denzel Washington. Yes, it was Ryan Reynolds. And this is a he's a Swedish director who mm-hmm. has emigrated to the states and is now making films in Hollywood. It would seem. Anyway, uh, so Child 44 is based on a novel, I assume a best-selling novel. How else would this film have gotten made? And we're going to tell you all about this film and what we thought about it in just a moment. But first, we want to tell you where you can find us on the internet. You can go to our blog at www.in-the-q, that's the letter q.com. We post all of our shows there. You can, you can participate in discussions or you can even make requests for movies you'd mm-hmm. like us to review. And then similarly on Facebook, if you do a search for In The Queue, Q-U-E-U-E, we have a page and you can actually listen to all of our shows on our Facebook page uh, again. You can participate in discussion or leave comments. Actually, the Facebook route seems to be the most popular way for people to leave suggestions yeah, um, it does. For films does. that they would like us to review. So keep it up. Also on Facebook, we have videos, things that we post um, to sort of supplement the discussion of, of uh, what particular film we happen to be reviewing at that time. Mm-hmm. Lastly, we have an iTunes presence. Just uh, look up in the queue. Once again, that's Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. All of our shows are up. You can download them all. Uh, as soon as we finish recording them, they go up on iTunes. You can subscribe. They'll be delivered to you. That's the way it works. It's a great deal. We highly recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. The highest recommendation. The the ultimate recommendation. Which brings us back to Child 44. Mm. So, as Andrew alluded to, this movie's kind of hard to follow. It's a little bit difficult to sort of Summarize. summarize the whole mess of the film but what i can best discern as the the main sort of plot or the main sort of thing that is advertised as the plot tom hardy 
plays a Soviet officer um, in World War II. And uh, he gets disgraced, basically, for some kind of transgression. And he is, he's put on this case. Well, first first he's made into a hero. He, he is a national hero right. because he is photographed raising the so- Soviet flag above the Reichstag when they take the Reichstag in 1945. Then the rest of the film takes place in the 50s. And it is in that period mm-hmm. that he is disgraced for refusing to uh, to give up his wife, essentially, to the Soviet state to to manufacture whatever he needs in order for the state to prosecute her. Right. Yeah. So he's put on this this uh, detail, basically, to solve a series of child murders that's um, plaguing the the region. Well, I would I would say he's not even put on the detail. He's just sent to a a small village and he he recognizes that a murder that occurs in that village is eerily similar to uh, a murder that happened back in Moscow where his brother's son was killed but because under the Soviet regime they believe that there are quote unquote no murders in paradise right. uh murders actually don't happen uh murder is a capitalist problem as Vincent Cassell uh mumbles his way through that line in, in this film uh it's a capitalist problem so they don't acknowledge that it's a murder so they say that he was struck by a train but clearly he wasn't struck by a train he had organs removed he had been drowned there were all kinds of blunt trauma to the head in some cases blunt trauma to the head yeah and so he when he gets exiled to this remote village and he sees a similar murder he realizes that there's somebody committing murders in soviet russia child murders right and he needs to get to the bottom of it. Well, you seem to have a pretty firm grasp on on the chronology of, of things overall. Yeah, I I'm telling you, I was trying. I was like paying so much attention because it was like against all odds that you could make sense of what was going on in this film. Yeah, well, it, they were trying to basically collapse a, a novel into a film, which is always difficult. I'll, I'll grant it that. I haven't read the source material, but this this film has all like the ingredients of the of a novel, as if you would say like you mm-hmm. know if like a a novel is like a, a nice hearty stew. It's got the potatoes and the carrots, the beef, tomatoes, and all that. All those ingredients are are in Child Forty Four, the film, but it's it's it seems very confused. And one thing that I was kind of I had my mind blown when I was watching the opening credits. This movie has two editors, which is which uh-huh. is not, you know, unheard of. I mean, some films have more than one editor. But these two editors are some of the most amazing filmmakers around. You've got Pietro Scalia, who I believe edited uh, some of Michael Mann's films. Mm-hmm. Um, Dylan Titchener, who, who edited Paul Thomas Anderson's films. Um, and I was just thinking like, wow, the talent behind this film, this is going to be amazing. And then I saw the cast and it's got great people. Yeah, um, it's got an all-star cast. I mean, a really, really great. Yeah. One. Like, as you mentioned, Vincent Castle, um, and I saw Gary Oldman, Gary Oldman, Tom Hardy, Nomi Rapace. Yeah. And I, and I actually saw Charles dance in the credits too. I was like, oh boy, yeah. Charles dance. 
and he shows up at the very end, reminding me a lot of his role in um, the Imitation Game. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but yeah, this movie it's it is confusing, and the only thing that I really kind of liked that was not kind of maudlin and and overwrought, simultaneously overwrought and half baked, were the just the simple dialogue scenes, uh, because the director he. He could have done this better, but he 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 kind of let the actors run the show when it came time to these scenes where it had this kind of nice moody lighting from overhead, and Tom Hardy is laying around telling stories to all of his Soviet, you know, countrymen. But when he's on at the top of his game, and um, it was just a pleasure to be able to enjoy their performances, uh, but for the most part. I didn't. I did not enjoy yeah. Child 44. Um, it just seemed so, like, trite and uh, insincere, even. Or, or well, I I think that it. I think it had. I don't think it knew what film it wanted to be. I don't. I don't think that they ever settled on a, a film because. Ostensibly, this is really, when it comes down to it, this is kind of a procedural. It's kind of a police procedural with the backdrop of Soviet Russia. You know, yeah. at its heart, it's them trying to find a killer of children. That's really what it is. But it never, it never settles into the narrative enough for you to feel compelled by that level of storytelling. You don't under, you don't. You're not taken along for the ride uh-huh. on this this uh, sort of pr- police procedural. Instead, it distracts itself at every turn with trying to make these grand statements about the the Soviet, uh, you know, surveillance, mm. re- you know, system and 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 the state watching you and and uh, you know not not believing and and having foregone conclusions. When, you know, they've decided that something is the way that it's going to be, then that's simply the way it's going to be. All of those things, it gets distracted with. Mm-hmm. And it all, like every time something new comes along, there's also this drama between Tom Hardy and Nomi Rapace. They're married, but do they, they seem to have a very cold relationship. Do they love each other? Do they not love each other? Why does he stand up for her when they seem to hate each other? Uh, you know, and 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 it plays with that a little bit. It toys with that relationship a little bit. It toys with this rivalry between uh, Tom Hardy and Joel Kinnaman's characters, where Joel Kinnaman is a fellow officer in the Soviet regime, and mm-hmm. and Tom Hardy shames him at one point. So there's this kind of rivalry going on there. And then there's this thing when when he goes to this remote village, and and he is introduced to Gary Oldman, and Gary Oldman is like the the man who who you know is has a way that he runs things and he doesn't want to do that. You know, he doesn't want to go down this, this road that Tom Hardy wants to investigate these murders and all that kind of stuff, but nothing is ever, they never spend enough time with any of these things for us to care about anything at all. Yeah. Because it's so, it's so uh, distracted by every shiny new thread that it, it, we never, we never settle into anything. The screenwriter for this movie is Richard Price, who's been writing scripts for a long time, um, dating back to like the the late seventies, and he's he's done you know very sort of praised work. He's worked with Scorsese and Spike Lee, and um, he's 
experienced. And I mean, I guess adapting a novel, like I was saying about the whole like stew metaphor, it's like mm-hmm. novels since they t- to occupy so much more time and space in your mind and your heart they can afford to go on these digressions and deal with the interior life of the characters and and juggle different themes because their structure is generally different from a feature film. Um, So the trick of adapting a novel is to somehow find a a balance and and there's some things you're going to have to let go even if they're really compelling in the book. Yeah, and, and I think that that, I think you're exactly right. I think that gets to the heart of the problem with this film is that they can't settle on the thematic elements that they want to focus on. I mean, if you oftentimes the reason that big fans of books hate the movie adaptations of those books is because it didn't include all of the detail from the book. Well, it's impossible to do that. And anybody who expects that is dreaming. I mean, it's just never going to happen. So, what you do is as, as a good and responsible and intelligent filmmaker is you select the elements of the book that speak to you, or you find the through line that makes the most sense and you cut away the fat. Mm -hmm. So you end up with the shining by Stephen King. And then you end up with Stanley Kubrick's the shining two very different entities. Right. They have, they have a sort of basic resemblance to one another because of the overlook hotel and the kind of, you know, Jack Torrance and the, 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 the main, Characters are all the same, mm-hmm. but the way that things play out is so different. And that's because the things that spoke to Stanley Kubrick from that book are completely different from the things that spoke to yeah. Stephen King. It's, it's artistic license in some ways. Yeah. And personally, I really enjoy reading a book or, or seeing a film that's a story that I really liked and being able to see them differently, see differences. Mm-hmm. Like in you mentioned The Shining – in The Shining, you've got a hedge maze in Stanley Kubrick's world, and that yeah. that emphasizes his themes of 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 puzzles and getting lost, and and sort of like you know people as ants in the maze. Uh, but in this in the Stephen King book, the uh, there's no hedge maze. There's topiary animals that come to yeah, that come to come life. Alive. Yeah, yeah, and and that's. Great. They're both great for different reasons, and they both make sense in their respective formats. It mm-hmm. would have been very difficult in 1980 to recreate topiary animals that come to life. Um, and not to say that they had to compromise in that regard. I think both, as I said, both novel and film are great at what they do. Um, but in this case, I don't know. I felt like the the whole motif of Soviet life rang false for me i mean from the yeah. accents vincent cassell's accent was ridiculously awful it's like he wasn't even trying and then tom, yeah. tom hardy does his best and he's a fun actor to watch but he didn't really get a lot of things to to really do you know what i mean yeah he didn't really well, do it, a whole lot i think that's because it, it didn't ever settle on anything it, it just it just flitted from one you know, thread to another in the, in the film. And it never really, I, I never felt like I had enough information in this film. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, you know, I think that, I think it was trying to ape a kind of film that has existed in the past, maybe but Fritz not Lang's M maybe for a little bit of Fritz Lang's <laughs> M, maybe a little bit of Schindler's list, maybe a little bit of, you know, any number of, you know, films that are, 
uh, very kind of dark and, and good and, at what they do. And do well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> but in this particular case, it's aping these films but without any of the actual understanding of what make made those films good, as you say. Like the the stoic nature of everybody in this film. Like everybody is stoic all the time. I, th- I don't think there's a smile to be found in this entire film. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's just like, they're like, oh, well, it's Soviet Russia in the 50s. You know, nobody smiles. Nobody doesn't. And I'm not saying that I need smiles. I just found that I found it to be oppressively. Dour. Fa- false. Yeah, dour, but also false. Like it, it just felt like they were like, oh, Soviet movie from the 50s. Check. Everybody frown. All right. Now frown more. Yeah. Do more frowning. Well, Be more stoic. I'm, I'm Daniel. Emote, I'm Daniel Espinosa. Listen to what I say. <laughs> I made a movie with Denzel Washington. I made Safe, safe House. <laughs> well, this, this makes me appreciate Steven Spielberg's accomplishment with Schindler's List even more because um, I do tend to believe in the auteur theory and that the director is the author of their film and it comes down to the director ultimately even if somebody else has a great idea and proposes it to the director it's still the director's choice to go with it or not that that right. being said daniel espinosa has undertaken the task of creating a whole world far removed from our own both in time and place and culture and language and it's almost like this is a quick and dirty way to adapt a best-selling novel because it, yeah. they're not what does he what does he know about Soviet Russia? I mean, I, I I'm not saying that I know a lot about Soviet Russia because I don't really, but I'm familiar with Eastern Europe in some ways because I have family there and I've been there a few times. Um but it seems to me that if if they did want to tell a story about a child murderer, which has been done in better ways in the past. Um, mm-hmm. Did they really, did the, the, the distractions and the extra, the extra vegetables in the stew have to be there because, because they're now they, as you said, they're getting caught in these different sorts of subplots that distract, whether it's, you know, with his wife or with Gary Oldman or, or the whole overarching, Soviet mentality that you know there are no murders in paradise it's just it's just kind of like a, a mixed up movie that never mind the fact that all the the supposed thrills and chills are just not very exciting or, or interesting yeah. to watch and the ending well, the, the the ending of this movie is is just such a piece of it's just <laughs> the the very very conclusion of this film after a bloody climactic shootout it the ending is so maudlin and and so you know broadly manipulative and and this movie is just it uh, it comes from what i imagine is a very interesting book but it just seems like it's just too confused to make an interesting movie yeah absolutely i mean like you mentioned you mentioned the that none of the sort of moments of action in this film are interesting. I think that more than that, they are sloppy. They're, they're chaotic to the point of being uninteresting. I mean, the camera work is a mess in the opening of the film or close to the opening of the film. When, when they show soldiers storming the Reichstag, yeah. 
and taking it. It's an action sequence. It's a it's a war action sequence mm-hmm. where you know these guys are storming up the the steps of the Reichstag, which could be incredibly dramatic mm-hmm. and interesting and fun and and thrilling. Mm-hmm. And it's none of those things because you can't. You have no clue what is happening. It's the sloppiest camera thinking, work I've ever seen. I was thinking about you because I know you make you always make a good point about how in action scenes there needs to be a frame of reference. There's needs there needs to be rules so that you can tell what's going on. There needs to be spatial geometry. You have to know where the good guys are, where the bad guys are, where they are in relation to one another, and where they are in relation to the camera. That's how all of the best action sequences have ever been filmed right. in the history of cinema. That's how you do yeah. it. And and it's been it's been a trend for the last fifteen or twenty years to go away from that and do what Roger Ebert called shaky cam, mm-hmm. right? Which is just like just put the camera on your shoulder and just kind of film film a bunch of stuff happening and we'll put it together in the editing room and who cares? It's chaos, right? So it's, if it feels like chaos to me, then it'll come across as chaos to the viewer, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like it's it's kind of a, a warped sense of cinema verite. Uh, yeah, where. Where they they think that because they're like hand holding it and they're getting all gritty and funky, like that's gonna that's gonna come across as being gritty and intense. Um, I, I think I think this all probably started around the time Saving Private Ryan came out. But the problem is that it, Saving Private Ryan's action sequences are incredibly thrilling. Yeah. They're incredibly well done. They're the best parts of the film, as you know. You know that I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. think um, in, in our conversation about that film, I I made that very clear, and. The the difference is that, like the, the uh, difference between Spiel- Spielberg and Espinosa. <laughs> well, it's the difference between those two. Spielberg is understands how important it is to have that camera placement placement and know what is going on and where everybody is. And so all of those, though they look chaotic, they go to they go to a lot of trouble to make it look very chaotic. Mm. But it's not simply somebody throwing a camera on their shoulder, filming a bunch of garbage, and then cutting it together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would, those, those were, I can almost guarantee you story, storyboarded out ahead of time. Um, but if, if, if this scene in the Reichstag was storyboarded, I would be shocked. Yeah. Absolutely. I shocked. mean, even the, it is kind of like a, an easy out to, if you want to do something visceral and jarring, people do shake the camera a little bit. But in this case, the, the cinematographer, Oliver Wood, not to be a snob, but he's not even in the ASC. But Oliver Wood, like whoever was operating the camera, the 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 shaking of it was so transparent and un- unnatural. It was just like moving up and down slowly, and it was like it was just terrible. Um, but yeah, no, I think you made some really good points there about the differences between Saving Private Ryan and this film. Another thing that Saving Private Ryan did was they altered the shutter speed of the, the cameras yeah. too to create a kind of stuttering effect which almost a strobe which yeah. Ridley Scott would also can't really say he stole it because it's not patented but Ridley Scott would use that in Gladiator uh, in 2000 yes. two years later um, but and it's funny that you mentioned Ridley Scott yeah <laughs> because he produced this film yeah he is one of the producers on this film and his his production company Scott Free is the production company that made this film Wow. Which shocks me because Ridley Scott, I love Ridley Scott, and even some of his more uh, embarrassing films, I have enjoyed. Yeah, uh, some of the ones that people like the least, I've still enjoyed, and I think that he is one of those people who has a, a tremendous sense of spatial 
awareness and, and sort of where everybody is. Some of his action sequences are among the most thrilling and, and enjoyable action sequences in the history of film. Yeah. I think uh, in a movie like Gladiator, for sure, in movies like Alien and Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, I mean, he is he is a master of that kind of stuff. So for, for his name to be on this film is shocking to me. I mean, it's 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 bizarre. Yeah. I was just looking up Pietro Scalia's credentials, and I think actually I don't think he worked with Michael Mann, but he did work with um, Oliver Stone, and he oh, yeah. won the Oscar for editing JFK, which also had multiple editors. Yeah, and that movie is like a textbook example of great editing. Oh yeah, it's one of the great edited films of all time. Yeah, because this this must have been after you left um, School of the Arts, but my final exam for my editing course in film school, the teacher, we went into a theater, the whole class, and they put up JFK on the screen, and they just let it play, and then one by one, we would sit next to the teacher, and he would say, okay, what did they just do? Okay, what, what was that? What just happened? Oh, that's cool. What's that? What's going on right now? What, oh, I'm what sorry, is this? I missed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's... I would, I would have enjoyed yeah, that. Yeah, and that's, that's the kind of thing that you could do uh, with, with JFK. Um, maybe maybe Pietro and Dylan Titchener were brought on to save the film. To save it. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. That, that has to be the case. Yeah. Because they probably looked at it and they realized what a mess they had in, in their hands. And they were like, well, do the best you can and we'll release it in April before the... <laughs> Before the uh, the big movie season begins, right. kind of drop it where nobody's going to notice it, and uh, and we'll call it a day. Uh, hopefully, it'll get some play on Netflix, and you know, <laughs> it's got a pretty crappy rating right now. It when it first debuted, it was like five point something, and I was like, oh no, now it's up to like six point something, six point three. Yeah, yeah, but it's um, not one of my favorite films of twenty fifteen so far. Oh, no, not even close. I do not recommend this film in any way, even if you love all of these actors, even if you love Tom Hardy, even if you love uh, Gary Oldman, who's probably, in my opinion, the best performance in this film. It's a performance that exists in a complete void. I had no idea why he <laughs> behaved the way that he behaved. Like, as as a as a, a performance to be lifted out and put into, like, a clip format, you probably look at it and go, wow, man, Gary Oldman really selling it, man, doing a great job again. Gary Oldman, I love that guy. <laughs> But if you watch it in the context of the film, you'll say to yourself, well, I, what is Gary Oldman doing? Like, why is he doing anything that he's doing? This, none of this makes sense. <laughs> yeah, he does seem to kind of exist in a different plane than all the other actors. Like, why is he so against what Tom Hardy wants to do and then so for it? What is that transition for him? Why does he make that mental transition? I don't understand well, any of it. I think, I think he was just trying to miss... The filmmaker was just trying to misdirect the audience into thinking that Gary Oldman was, I thought, the the main bad dude. The killer, yeah. yeah. But no, that that belongs that role belongs to the excellent actor Patty Considine, who yeah. is woefully <laughs> underutilized. Who is in this film who is well. so crazy that he waterboards himself in his spare time. Yeah, he's yeah. He, what he gets so guilty about murdering children that he he. He puts a rag over his face and dumps a bucket of water onto himself. Or is he trying to relive the the days where he was tortured? I don't I didn't understand. Yeah. I didn't understand. I didn't know the context of his life. I didn't have any sense other than this bizarre sequence where he waterboards himself. It is a bizarre sequence. Um anyway, 
I feel like we've devoted far too much time to this. Yeah, you guys get the idea. Um, I don't recommend it. I would say it's not even worth watching on Netflix. I think it's this is a really bad film. I would recommend. Um, and I, I would recommend Kurt Cameron saving Christmas over Child's Forty Four. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, clearly you guys know where we stand. Um, so uh, join us for our next episode when we will be talking about the film The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, uh, John Ford film from 1962. Uh, and I get the feeling that we're going to feel very differently about that film <laughs> from the way we feel about this one. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think that's in the cards. So uh, thank you for listening and we hope you will join us for that episode. <laughs>